Hey, and welcome to episode number 277 with Pam England. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. I want to tell you about one of today's epic podcast sponsors, Nourished Life. I first met Irene Falcone, the founder of Nourished Life, back in 2011, and we immediately bonded over our passion for clean, toxic-free living and have been friends ever since. And over the years, I've watched Nourished Life grow into a one-stop shop for natural health, beauty, and eco-friendly products. They are super strict on what they will stock with a massive range of vegan products plus an awesome loyalty program. And if you don't know where to start, there are over 160,000 reviews across all of their products, which really helps when you're trying to find the right product for you. Their huge range includes brands that I love and use, including Inica, Iri Perez, Bodhi, No Pong and Noosa Basics, just to name a few. So to get 15% off full-priced items, head to nourishlife.com.au and enter the code MATRIBE at the checkout. Pam England is a former nurse midwife who practiced in hospital, birth centre and home birth settings. After giving birth, she experienced emotional birth trauma, but couldn't find a listener, counsellor or support group that could guide her out. She knew many women were experiencing emotional birth trauma and needed a listener with medicine words. Pam's search included travelling to meet and learn from many and to earn a master's in counselling. She's also the author of Birthing from Within, Labyrinth of Birth, and Ancient Map for Modern Birth. After teaching childbirth mentors the Birthing from Within approach, she founded Birth Story Medicine in 2006 and now teaches Birth Story mentors both online and in retreats alongside a team of other facilitators. She is currently working on her next book, Birth as a Heroic Journey and Birth Story Medicine. And in today's episode, we chat about her story and how she got to where she is today doing the work that she now does. We also talk about what is a birth mentor and why they are so important. How to release your fears around birth before you actually give birth and why this is so important how to overcome fear without a mentor, her sacred method to mentor women to help them move through their fears, how to heal birth trauma, 
Why sharing your birth experience with the right people really matters? How art leads to self-discovery and self-awareness? Why a holistic approach to childbirth is so important? Why cesarean deliveries shouldn't be judged or feared? The first birth story process and how it works? How to look at birth as a heroic journey? The labyrinth analogy from pregnancy to labor? Plus, so much more. And for everything that Pam and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 277. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review titled Inspirational from Natalie Mazzarella. And she says, Melissa's podcast and books are incredibly inspirational for me. Thank you, Melissa, for being so honest and vulnerable. It has helped me be more loving toward myself and others and have the courage to let go of my own limiting beliefs. You are incredible. Natalie, you are incredible. Firstly, thank you so much for that super kind and beautiful review. I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm so proud of you. Well done. And so excited for what's next for you, my darling. And don't forget that for you, Natalie, and for anyone who leaves a review, all you have to do is screenshot the review to hello at Melissa Ambrosini. And I want to gift you my wildly wealthy guided meditation as a little thank you for taking the time to leave a review. I honor your time and I honor your words. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to write a review. So please send me in an email with a screenshot of it and I will send you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. And if you want to get another one of my guided meditations, my bursting with love guided meditation, you could leave a review on Amazon for Mastering Your Mingo or Open Wide or both. And again, send me a screenshot and I will send that over to you. And now, without further ado, let's get this epic conversation started with the incredible Pam England. Pam, welcome to the show. I would love to hear what did you have for breakfast this morning? Well, I'm sorry to tell you, I was working straight through and I didn't have breakfast, which is unusual for me. That's all good. That's all good. (laughs) Now, I want to hear your story. I'm so excited to hear your story and how you got to where you are today doing this incredible work for women. So how did it all unfold for you? Well, I think it unfolded because when I gave birth to my first child, which was 38 years ago, I was a nurse midwife doing home births and pretty confident. And while I was on uh, my cesarean table from being transferred from my home birth, this question came into me. It really did. It just came into me just before he was born. And the question was, what is it I needed to know to give birth as a mother that I didn't know as a midwife? And the question kind of had like a vibration to it. So after my birth, I was very shocked and depressed and confused. And I pursued that question for eight years. And that's how I got into it. I wanted to know, how did women used to be initiated into birth instead of educated about birth? So I I went to school, I got my master's, but I did a lot of reading, and I began to envision 
even if I couldn't find the exact answer about how women might have used to have been prepared, because you know a lot of that isn't written, it's not accessible, I began to imagine how one would go about initiating versus just educating. And, and that's how it happened. So you talk a lot about birth as this rite of passage and an act of self-discovery for women and how we are so divorced from that idea these days. It's it's just crazy. And I want to know, how can we bring that back? How can we create more a rite of passage and a ritual and go deeper within ourselves around this huge life-altering thing that happens to us? Yeah, well... It's a big leap from where we are now, but in fact, I was just talking to my students about this today. As I think the first step would be to begin having more people talk about and write about the idea that childbirth is a heroic journey. It is a rite of passage. Those two are a little bit different. I mean, a rite of passage technically is a bit more passive, and a heroic journey requires active preparation participation, and an intention to return from the ordeal. But at any rate, it it requires a shift of enough people thinking about this in a new way. And the second thing it requires is that instead of having childbirth educators only, we need childbirth mentors and birth story mentors. Because a mentor is a completely different relationship than a teacher. So a person in a traditional culture did not initiate themselves or educate themselves and sort of initiate themselves because you can't initiate yourself for something greater when you haven't done the thing that will make you greater. It's not logical. And nowadays, what concerns me is how many people are self-educating or getting apps, which is very, very brief and, you know, briefly informative, but it is not involved in a human dialogue or, or like a mentor might see you in a deep way being older and give you assignments to help push you to understand yourself or to get ready for the next step. And an app can't do that. I love this. <laughs> yeah. So a rite of passage, I think, simply implies that you go, you go across a threshold, a threshold experience, let's say, and something happens during that experience that changes your, your role in your culture or in your family. So you could say, using an archetypal or Jungian term, a maiden or a maiden flower, to a mother fruit or a a more mature woman. Um, this is not a value, by the way, on an individual. I'm just trying to find terms that explain that there has to be a transformation in your in your role in life or your self awareness, right? So something has to happen to you, you know, with to to make that change happen. It's not something you can just say, "I am this now." Something happens to make that change happen. So that's a rite of passage. I love this idea of birth mentors. I think that's really powerful. Mm. And I've never physically given birth to another human, but you talk a lot about releasing your fear before you give birth. Why is that so important and how do we do it? Because I know logically 
a lot of people might think, yes, I've got to do that, but how? How do we actually release the fear before we go into birth? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think that also is is accelerated or 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 possible more possible with a mentor. It's harder to do it for yourself because your own mind will stop you. The first step though is to acknowledge that having a fear in childbirth is a natural part of childbirth. I think there's this new notion that we're supposed to trust birth and trust our bodies, which seems to me to be rather naive and magical in, in a way. I mean, it sounds reassuring, but you know, the word uncertainty is synonymous with birth. And when you're facing something with all kinds of possibilities, something you can't control, it's, it's impossible to completely prepare for birth because you don't even know what you're preparing for. You don't know what surprise is in your Cracker Jack box. You know, you know that there'll be a surprise, but you don't know what it's going to be. So how do you actually prepare for it? So I think the first step is just to acknowledge that it's okay to be a little uncertain, a little bit afraid of the unknown. That's first. And then the second thing is to go into the belly, go into the soft belly and just admit to yourself to feel softly that I am really afraid of what is it? I'm afraid of making too much noise in labor. I'm afraid of having an epidural. I'm afraid of being transferred to a hospital. I really want to have my baby at home. It could be any number of things that are personal to you. Now, what happens with this is that when people have a fear, acknowledged or otherwise, there's an image that goes with it. And that image is not only of the thing itself, but you sort of see yourself in a light of not being strong or smart or lovable or some some quality that if you could achieve this goal, you, you people would see you in this way, right? So the fear isn't just having this unwished for thing happen. It's also what you'll think of yourself or what others will think of you. And this fear causes the body-mind to freeze even before labor starts. There's a holding of the energy or a tightening, tightening in the belly, tightening in the, around the heart, tightening in the mind. You so don't want this to happen. An interesting thing that I've discovered is early on, I thought if we could figure out strategies to avoid this thing we're afraid of. And then have this idea that it, maybe it won't happen if we have a strategy to prevent it or avoid it. But the problem was over and over, <laughs> I saw people couldn't avoid it. Now, my question is this. When people have a fear of something happening in labor, does the veil of consciousness slip aside and then slip back so we almost have a predictive view of what might happen? And that's why we're afraid of this particular thing. This often seems to be the case, but maybe it also comes from other, other things, stories and such, so forth. But, you know, Melissa, the thing is that the way through this is to see yourself coping with the thing you don't want, not avoiding it. Yes, so much easier said than done, huh? <laughs> well, actually, it isn't that hard when you have a mentor. I've helped many women imagine themselves coping with the thing they most don't want to happen. And when they can imagine themselves coping and they have their own, they, they begin to envision it, the other image of freezing and not coping is somewhat replaced. And when a person thinks that this did happen, I wouldn't like it, but I could cope, some of the fear goes away. It, it, it is actually doable. 
it's often when we just look at that scary thing, it dissolves. We've actually just shone light on it and you're like, oh, a little bit of it dissolves or maybe even the whole thing. I know for me personally, I've built something up in my head before. I've made it out to be so scary and so huge. And then when I've actually just sat and looked at it, it's completely dissolved and it's not been as scary as what I've made it out to be. Well said. See, that's exactly it right there. So if someone doesn't have a birth mentor to help them through that process, is there a way that they can just do it within themselves? Like just doing what I said, something like that? Some people can. It depends on the individual. Some individuals have had enough success doing that in other parts of their life that they're able to do it in this area. But some people haven't had the experience of confronting their fears in this way. And sometimes they've been able to confront fears in other areas. But when it comes to having a baby because of conditioning or memories or you know, many different possibilities. Or, you know, the fear, you love your baby so much, the fear of something happening, that you're, it's very hard to do it for yourself. So the answer is yes, and maybe, and maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just depends. Mm, yes. Is there anything else we can do? Like any other little tips that we could do to really address this fear before we go into pregnancy and birth? Hmm. Well, I would have to know, there probably is a number of things one could do, but I would need to know, as, as being a mentor, what, what is the fear? Well, one of the common fears I hear with my girlfriends and people is fear of intervention. You know, they have this idea that they really want to be as natural as possible and they have this fear of intervention then leading to cesarean. So how would you work with someone who has that fear? Okay, that's a good one. I mean, that makes it more concrete. First of all, the fear of intervention is somewhat vague. So I would ask the individual, what in particular are you seeing? We have to start with an image. The imagination is creating this. And you might even ask when they tell you what exactly, what intervention is most concerning to them, from where did this particular concern come? Did it come from someone you know had this experience? Or why, why this one and not another one? You know, that, that could be of interest. Okay, well, let's, let's role play a little bit. Okay. So say the fear is, you know, and I'm just using my girlfriends as examples here. Say the fear is, I don't want an epidural. And that is because I have heard in the past that that intervenes with your labor and could slow it down and then could lead to something else and then something else and then something else and then cesarean. So how would you help someone work through that fear? Well, you know, all that's true that sometimes epidurals do snowball. so. I would still have to go through the process of when you envision yourself having an epidural, what do you see? What do you feel? And what are you telling yourself about yourself because you've had an epidural? What's your belief about yourself? Number one. All right. Now, then the next thing would be supposing you're an epidural if you needed it. 
did snowball into other kinds of things. And the question is still, how do you see yourself coping? Now, you can either see yourself being a victim to this or just uh, immobilized by it or so afraid there's nothing you can do. But in your deepest imagination, imagine that you have had an epidural. There are certain things you can't do. You are somewhat immobilized. You know, different kinds of surprises can happen after an epidural. But can you imagine yourself coping versus freezing? And what kinds of things could you do in general to cope? And one of them is to not blame yourself and not judge yourself, to find some self-compassion, some mercy for yourself. And that allows you to start seeing that, you know, asking for help. Or you don't know specifically what you would do because you don't know specifically what the intervention or the the next snowballing thing would be. You can't, it's not that specific, but it's more of a, it's more of envisioning, not abandoning yourself, not giving up on yourself. Mm, So important. That is like, that's the key. That is the key. The judgment that we hold on ourselves over what's happening, like not holding ourselves to that and just being kind to ourselves, like whatever happens, just being really kind to ourselves. Because in those moments when we're the most open and the most vulnerable, that's when we need our love the most. That's so, so true. You know, I was just writing yesterday about the seeds of birth trauma, emotional birth trauma. And one of the things I've discovered is that when we experience this kind of negative feeling about ourselves because of whatever unfolds or like an epidural, the seeds of that judgment are almost always present before the labor. They don't happen during or after the labor. So if we hold, if you know, the idea of a birth plan, whatever we put on there, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, there's already a judgment, not against the thing itself, but against ourselves, should we should have it. Now, I know there's a logic to not wanting these things, evidence-based logic, I understand that. But there's a charge to the person not wanting it so badly that it's personal. And that's the self-judgment. And what I'm really, really, what's interesting to me is how often it, it is present before the event. So if in pregnancy you're asking me about preparation, and I'm thinking that the most one of the most important things we can do is to go through this, you know, these things that we're afraid people will think of us or we'll think of ourselves into one by one, love ourselves and say, I'm not, I wouldn't choose this for myself. I'm doing everything I can to avoid this happening casually. But if it happens, I'm still a good person. And I still love myself. I still love myself. I can still give birth consciously, if if not naturally. You know, I'm going to do my best, but I can't always control what's going to happen. But I can bring myself to each and every moment in the best way I know how. Now, that may seem very uh, Pollyannish, but that is a very high state of spirituality, to be a love warrior, a birth warrior. And I think, you know, this is how I live by my life. I have a 13-year-old bonus son, I call him. And all that matters is that if you have done your best and if you've showed up, and that's all that matters, like you can still birth consciously in whatever happens and whatever unfolds, as long as you've showed up and you've done your best, then you know in your heart that you've showed up and that's all that matters. Yeah. It's very important. We have it's it's a very sad state of affairs to me that the Western culture women are using how they give birth as a measure of their character yeah. or their value. Wow. And well, I'm quite old, 
compared to most of the women who are barely on 65 now. So when I was growing up, there was no such word or phrase of my body failed me or my body betrayed me. And I've only started hearing that phrase in the last, I dare say, five, seven years, maybe. I don't know, not very long, just very recently. As long as I've been doing birth story work, I've only, it's like a new thing. And I'm like, what is this? So I don't know where, how I got started, but isn't that sad? Yeah, because this beautiful temple that we've been gifted creates life. Yes. It creates life. It is magic. Like forget pulling rabbits out of hats and card tricks. Like, I mean, I love watching birthing videos. I love it. And I just look at them and I'm like, what? Like that? Like she is incredible. Like look at her. Like that is magic. It is a miracle that your body can do that. Like men can't do that. We get to do that. And so this whole idea of my body's failed me is it's got to, we've got to catch it. We've got to be mindful of it. And I feel like you talk a lot about medicine words and medicine from within. So can you talk to us about what that is? Mm, Yeah. You're referring to the idea that within every birth story, there's a hidden there's hidden medicine that we have to discover. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you the story. So after my cesarean birth, because I was I start I was, became a midwife very young. I was only 24 or 25 when I went into school and graduated. I was very very young to be a midwife in terms of life experience and so forth. So I was very naive and I was gung-ho about positive birth and really anti-intervention and especially anti-cesarean, right? So after I had all the things I thought only weak women had, (laughs) I laugh now because it's just like a so different me back then. Anyway, so I spent eight years trying to heal my birth story. And I went to all kinds of teachers. I went to France to meet Michelle O'Don and Petivier, and I got my master's in psych counseling. I did everything to figure out how to heal my birth story. And one day, it was eight years later, I cracked up. I said, oh, this is so funny. This is so funny. I've been going about this inside out. My birth story healed me. And what I discovered in that moment, it came to me, it came into me that I had become so compassionate with women who are afraid, women who are down about their births because they they feel like they failed because I felt that way. I felt so much compassion for the confusion in the culture and what, what is happening. And I became a much kinder birth story listener and midwife because, because of my struggle to, to love myself. Because for a long time, I judged myself so harshly. Anyway, so what I do now is I, I don't heal the birth story or my techniques don't heal the birth story or questions or things like the birth art. None of that heals the birth story. The birth story, the medicine is already inside each, each storyteller, each person. They just haven't discovered it yet. So what I'm trying to do with my process, if you will, you know, my presence, my process, is to help people you know, become more and more soft-bellied first, more and more receptive, 
just a, it's a gradual descent. It's like an excavation. That's what it's like, you know. The answer of the medicine isn't on the surface. It's buried somewhere inside the unconscious. So we have to go gently, like with little brushes and little, you know, little spoons <laughs> to lift all the stuff that's on top of our truth. And when we get to it, we don't want to just plow into it and break it. We want to lift it out gently. And I often think about when I'm working with people, I often think, oh, there's a little shard. Oh, there's another little shard of truth. There's a little shard of self-love, but it's all kind of broken because the heart feels broken after a traumatic event. But eventually when we collect enough of these shards, we can put them back together again. Now the person will never be able to, you know, when you have a traumatic experience, you don't get your innocence back. The price you pay for wisdom and compassion is you lose your innocence, you lose your arrogance, you lose your self-righteousness, your certainty, all of that. That's the price you pay. But we get all these shards together, and sometimes when we put them together, there's actually writing on the pot, and we can actually read the message. You know, that's one way of thinking about. That's how I visualize the process of recovery. There's so many nuggets of wisdom and gold, and so much juicy information. We've just got to dig for it, and that's what I love about you and your work. You know, no matter what happens during birth, you are really encouraging for women to talk about their experience. So what happens, whether we have a quote-unquote positive birth or we have a not-so-positive one, how important is it that women talk about their experience? That's a very, very good question. There are times, so I'll start with the women who aren't ready to talk or they haven't found their words yet. Sometimes the shock is so great. We are, we have no words. And that, that period of time has to be respected too. And other times, I think there's a misguided notion that by just telling our story over and over to just anybody, the telling of it will heal it. And that is not true. Because the telling of it, if you will, carelessly to the wrong people who are only half listening or who may judge it verbally or even nonverbally with nonverbal cues, can actually add to the feeling of shame or confusion or not being understood, or depending on what the story is. So the first thing I would advise along this line of questioning is to find someone when it's time to tell your story who you actually know will be a good listener and not do story swapping or commiserating with their traumatic story, comparing notes. That's not helpful when you're processing a story, that is. And I think we have to be very kind to ourselves and pick just as carefully as we would pick a midwife thoughtfully, choose, you know, interview some people, figure out who's, who's going to be, who has a good ear and a big heart to tell our story. Yeah. Does it have to be a professional or could it be a friend? Could be a friend who is, absolutely could be a friend who has the capacity to hold the story and who to ask questions about it and to be really interested in it, really interested in, tell me what happened and what happened next and how did you feel about that and how do you feel about it now? Those kinds of questions. Not, why did you do that? <laughs> you know those kind of, 
But yeah, definitely. I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that incorporates mushrooms and adaptogens into their coffees, plant-based protein, edible skincare, and dairy-free lattes. You may remember Tiro, the creator of Four Sigmatic from episode 99, where he shared all about the power of functional mushrooms to transform your body and mind. And for those of you who drink coffee and are wanting to switch to a cleaner and upgraded elixir, you must check out their Lion's Mane Mushroom Coffee. Lion's Mane is one of my favorite functional mushrooms. It's been used by Buddhist monks to help them focus during meditation. It's your brain's best friend and supports productivity and creativity. It's also got another one of my favorite mushrooms, Shaga, the king of mushrooms which supports your immune system and is loaded with powerful antioxidant properties. But my all-time favorite product is their Reishi Mushroom Hot Cacao. Reishi helps enhance the immune system, reduce stress, improve sleep, and lessens fatigue. I think we could all do with some of that. And right now, you can get 15% off. All you have to do is head to foursigmatic.com forward slash MA tribe. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash M-A tribe to receive 15% off your order. Now let's get back to this conversation. You've written a few incredible books. Talk to us about birthing from within. What does that book teach? That was a book that looked at Yes, that happened so long ago. It took me eight years to to research that book before I could write the book. Eight years of experiments because after my own birth, I realized that the way I'd been educated for birth was pretty linear, uh, information, evidence based. Mm-hmm. So what this this book is about is what I would call multi sensory, uh, multi sensory approach to looking at. And a holistic approach looking at not only you do need to have information, I think, to give birth in our culture, of course. So if you had a pie, that would be a piece of it, maybe even a big piece of it. But the parts that were missing, I felt, in childbirth education are what birthing from within was about. And that was to turn women's attention or couples' attention. I don't know that fathers were as interested in this as or most of them anyway, that, as women. So but to turn the attention inward to what do I believe and how did I come to believe it? How do I feel and how did I come to believe it? Sometimes people don't even know what they feel, fear, want, believe. And so I discovered through this, uh, I did my master's degree and my, my thesis was on the birth art project. You know, I had to finish, you know, to get my degree. So I asked 18 women to draw pictures I had them do four pictures in the first trimester and four pictures in the third trimester. And I gave them eight, there was eight different assignments. And I gave them pastels and this big piece of paper and they would draw these pictures. So a lot of birthing from within was about this fantastic thing I discovered could lead people to self-discovery, self-awareness, getting in touch with their feelings. And that's birth art. Why is it so important that we take this holistic approach to childbirth? Oh, that's a really good question. Because 
Oh, that's such a good question. When preparation excludes a part of birth in our culture, if you will, like, and only promotes the idealistic point of view, the woman who goes into birth is like saying, go into battle, but here, give me your sword first, and here, I'll take your horse. You can have this donkey. I mean, it's kind of, it's, they're not, there's no way you can have go into birth in our culture with only a very po- you know, positive birth stories. You have to be able to be prepared for, well, what, like for example, let's take pain. There's certain kinds of childbirth preparation that don't even use the word pain. They want a woman to believe that she just trusts and she just relaxes or she envisions positive things. She won't experience the sensation, which is just an ordinary part of giving. I mean, it's just you know, it's a sensation of giving birth. So when she experiences pain, she wasn't prepared for pain. And so therefore she feels like I'm doing this wrong. It's my fault. I didn't study enough. I'm weak and all kinds of things. So in other words, she, every aspect of birth has to be looked at as part of childbirth preparation. So even the things we're hoping that won't happen, for example, one out of three women give birth by cesarean in the Western culture, maybe even more, depending on if you're in a certain city. So many childbirth teachers and midwives and lots of people won't even, they don't want to teach about cesarean because they think by teaching about it, they'll weaken her confidence or resolve. And also some women don't look at the chapters on cesarean or ask questions about it because they're afraid that it will show that they aren't committed to birthing naturally or weaken their resolve. So it can go on both sides, you see. But that's not holistic because if one in three women are giving birth by cesarean, cesarean has to be part of childbirth education. And it can be done in a very loving way, very matter-of-fact, very supportive, doesn't have to be made scary or judgmental at all. And then in this way, if a woman has a cesarean, she will not be and, a, and her partner as well, completely bereft, not knowing what to do or what to think. That is more traumatic than being prepared for the possibility of it. That's very true, because I have one friend I'm thinking about in particular who didn't even want to look at the cesarean because she was like, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me. And, you know, I was chatting to her about it and she said, but if I look at it, I'm then potentially putting it out there that it could happen. And I said the same thing to her. I was like, well, you know, maybe you want to be fully educated on everything. And by just learning and reading about it, you know, the seeding that you can do and different things that you can do, like the gentle cesareans, like just in case. And she was like, no, I I don't want to, because then that's putting it out into the universe that that could happen. So what would your, you know, words of wisdom be for someone who may be in that situation? Mm -hmm. That's always very challenging because that's a whole belief system and it's also a certain kind of person who wants to and who really believes that by staying in innocence it's a it's a form of protection but you know you can't make a labor be long or short or or some other event arise by thinking about it because if that were true Every woman who just thought positively about birth would then have a positive birth. 
But since that equation isn't true, not even close to true, then the other way of thinking, it just logic defies that it can't be true. So I might then want to start more gently, like what about having a cesarean is so frightening to you that you can't, we can't talk about it. We can't, we can't even look into how to prepare yourself for it. I mean, there must be something so frightening about it, or, or you must think there's something so, something about you if you have one that is, you just, you just so want to avoid it. What's that? I mean, I might start at the, you know, just exploring that. Yeah, she she said to me, I feel like I will have failed. Yeah, right. And so the process of mentoring, it's like another process of excavation, just like what we were talking about with trauma after the birth when we excavate the pieces. The same thing is happening here. A belief system is formed from layers and layers of bits and pieces that have been collected over decades probably before a woman has a baby you have to kind of go in there and find out from where does this idea that 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 would mean you failed and and really gently explore it now there's a process i do called first birth story do you know about that no please explain it well this is one of the most interesting pieces of our work in birth story medicine and that I discovered it accidentally when I was at a workshop in Texas. And how it works is, you know, you ask yourself or you ask someone you love, um, what is the earliest birth story you can remember? Like being told or seeing it on TV or cats gave birth or overhearing a birth story somewhere. Some. You know, you're, when you're really little, there's a, there's a period of time when you have no idea how babies are born. This is not even part of your consciousness. There's no, con- there's no idea whatsoever. And then at some point, you have an idea babies are born in hospitals. Or you have an idea, oh, birth is very painful. Or another idea that babies are cut out of mommies. You know? But before that, there was no idea, and now there's this idea. So there had to have been a story somewhere in there to create that story, that belief, that image. All right. So you ask about this, and people will come up with all kinds of amazing stories, just amazing stories. And so then you ask, well, how old were you when that happened, when you got that, when that, when that image came to you, that, that impression? I was about five or six or ten. That's what they usually say. Usually it's between five and eight. And who told you the story? Okay. And when you were real little, go back to being five or six or whatever age you were, go back. What was the image you made of that? And then they'll kind of think about it and they'll go, I pictured it this way. How did you feel about that? I felt scared. I felt afraid. I felt guilty for my mom if it was her own birth story or something like that. And now here's the question. This is the question upon which the future of her, her first birth plan will be written. And what prompt, you know, kids who are about six, seven, eight, they're always making up rules and promises. When I grow up, I'm gonna. Or when I grow up, I'm never gonna. You know how we do that? Mm -hmm. Everybody says, yeah, I remember doing that. (laughs) Well, when you hear a birth story, or this one woman told me she drove by, she was, they were driving by a field when she was about eight. She saw a cow give birth in the field, and it was just so, she was awestruck by it. And from that moment on, she knew that birth was natural. 
you see. So when I grow up, I'm going to birth natural like this, you know. So however this happens, you ask the person, what did you promise yourself? And they will say, I'm never going to let them do that to me. Or I'm going to have an epidural. Or I'm never even going to have a child, ever. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And when they say it, there's this emotional charge to it. And they kind of they kind of go, wow. So then you, the, the last question is, how did that assumption or that image or that promise to yourself, how is it playing out in your birth preparation? Or how did it play out? And they make a connection. I could tell you story after story about how people made these connections. And once they see that the unconscious, uh, the driving force behind a lot of their decisions, as an adult, they can say, wow, that was my child wanting to avoid this. But now as an adult, I can realize that things are more complex or more nuanced than that and not keep it that simple and that absolute. And now I have more choices. So this is a, like a, this is like a key into the lock. It's a beautiful process. Wow. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And this is what we need to do. We need to go back. We need to kind of dig and go, well, where did this first come from? Because that's where the gold is. That's right. That's right. So your other amazing books, Ancient Map for Modern Birth, tell us a little bit about that and what that teaches. Well, over the last 20 years, I fell in love with the story of Inanna. The Inanna's Descent was written four or 5,000 years ago in Sumer, which is now Iraq. And it's the most ancient myth we know, even older than Gilgamesh. And it's this amazing story about a woman's heroic journey, basically. So I studied it and studied it. I studied Sumer. I studied archetypes. I studied the heroic journey for, for you know, decades. And I began to teach this story to my clients as part of childbirth preparation. And I could not believe how parents reacted when they had a heroic journey story as a template for what they were going to experience or what they were already experiencing even as part of the preparation. It just blew my mind. It changed the whole way they prepared for birth and how they talked about their birth afterwards. So then when I wrote Ancient Map, I really believed that if we could take the template of the heroic journey, and Anana is the story that I used throughout the book in addition to a few other old myths, there's a couple other ones in there referenced, that people could read this and say, oh yeah, I'm like Anana. I'm I'm collecting my seven May for my journey, you know. I'm I'm going over uh, through the seven gate, you know. Or so they could begin to see their journey as the heroic journey. So that's how that book started. And then I added all kinds of other information to support the preparation or understanding of birth. Love it. And we'll link to that as well in the show notes. And then your third book, Labyrinth of Birth, Creating a Map, Meditations and Rituals for Your Childbearing Years. Tell us a little bit about that. And all of your books, by the way, sound incredible. I can't wait to read all of them. But tell us about Labyrinth of Birth. Well, that's a that's a fun story. I Well, I first saw Labyrinth when I was giving a workshop in Ohio. It was a big outdoor labyrinth. And I went out to it and I said, what is this? And someone said, this is a labyrinth. And I said, what's it for? And they said, 
Well, if you walk on the path, supposedly it will help you make a decision or solve a problem. So I, I crossed over the lines and sort of walked in a couple loops and walked over the lines and left and said, I don't get it. So I went and did my workshop, but you know, it got under my skin. I said, what the hell is that? So I started to research it and I said, oh my God, this is one of the oldest symbols that's found in seven places in the world. And it's tied to meditations and the spiritual thing. And I, so when I started to write the book, I was very sick. I had a, I had a very serious kidney problem. And 10 months before I got sick, I had a dream that I was typing and I saw a book come out of a typewriter. And in the same dream, I saw a sort of a symbol of a medical thing happening on the left side of my body. And I drew the picture of the dream because I thought that felt like a really prophetic dream. Well, it turns out that the kidney on the left side went into this very serious problem. So I started to write Labyrinth and of birth because I was literally on bed rest for the entire year. I could I could barely get up. And I always joked around what would come out first, the book or the kidney. <laughs> and the kidney came out first. But people started sending me all kinds of stories and things about labyrinths from around the world, and I researched it madly. So what the labyrinth of birth is about is meditations and stories about how Tracing a labyrinth, making a labyrinth, walking a labyrinth can balance the parts of your brain in such a way that you actually become intuitive and can sometimes answer a problem that you can't answer with your conscious mind. And I, I had people for many years were making clay labyrinths in my childbirth classes, so they would have an heirloom to give their baby, but also they could fire them and glaze them and then use them in labor. Because when you trace a labyrinth over and over, it takes you out of your rapid beta brain and puts you in your meditative alpha or theta brain. And it calms the nervous system down. It lowers blood pressure. It's very calming. But the thing that I found most interesting was that Northwestern India, people make labyrinths they're on every laboring woman's wall, or a midwife will draw the labyrinth and the dirt where the woman is laboring, and she'll be watching this, this labyrinth pattern as she's having a contraction. And the people in northwestern India really believe that this helped cope with pain. So I began to test this with my own clients. I would make their labyrinths, then I would bring in buckets of ice, have them put one hand in the ice, while they were tracing their labyrinths with the other hand or with their eyes. And sure enough, over and over and over, never had an exception, every woman said, oh, wow, I barely felt the ice. Wow, that's incredible. I thought it was incredible also. So I think the labyrinth is a, is a powerful symbol of the heroic journey, too. You know, you have all this preparation before you cross the threshold to go into the labyrinth. Then when you're, when you're tracing a labyrinth, that it's a universal path, so you can't get lost. But invariably, if your conscious mind gets involved, you think you are lost, but you can't get lost, which is like labor. When you're in labor, you think you're lost. You think you don't know where you are. You think you must be doing it wrong or this will never end. But if you do nothing, just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, you eventually come to the middle, which is the place of birth and death. So it's the birth of a child, the birth of a mother, and it's the death of some belief. It's the death of some you know, 
some maybe some fear you had or something. Something dies and something is born in the middle, right? And then you have to retrace the steps of all the back, all the way back and come out. So that's postpartum. And when you're postpartum and you're really close to the birth, you're really close to the womb or the, the, the central part of the lab. You're very close. You're thinking about the birth story. You're all excited. People are coming around. But as you get further from the birth, those loops get wider and wider. Kind of like the long night of the soul, the long night of the soul when you can't sleep and you're thinking, oh my God, how long will postpartum last? And so, you know, and eventually you just pop out. Mm, wow. You just pop out. So the whole, the labyrinth is, is a perfect symbol for our internal journey as women from pregnancy through labor, through the ordeal and through return. Beautiful. We'll link to that in the show notes. But I'd love to hear now, if you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world, besides your books, let's pretend they're already in there, what is one other book that you would choose for both females and males of that high school years? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Gosh, I'm just thinking, all oh, the books I love, you've caught me off guard. Well, there is a book I love, but it's a book called Journeys Through Mind Mountain by Bluestone. It's a very small book, and it's not well known. But it's a profound book about mindfulness and meditation written in such a mindful, meditative way you don't even realize that it's mindful meditation. It's kind of hard to describe this book. Yes, I think I would put that book in everyone's hands. Yeah, beautiful. How many children do you have? I have two. Two. And were they very different birth experiences for you? Oh, yes. Uh huh. Yeah, the first one was, <laughs> it's such a funny story. The first one was the labor, even pregnancy was so, there was so much anxiety and fear of not birthing at home and having a cesarean. It was just obsessive. And then I had a long, long, long labor at home and I had a cesarean. <laughs> and the second one, I had already done so much of this work I'm talking about. And the thing I prepared for most for my second birth was a conscious cesarean so that I wouldn't hurt myself with self-negation again. I would love myself through a second cesarean. But I did plan for a home birth, and I did birth him at home. And you didn't have a cesarean the second time? No, he was born at home very easily. Wow. But it, it was one of those situations that the pro most profound lesson was to love myself. I first prepared for the thing I most didn't want. And I prepared to love myself for the thing I most didn't want. Because having a baby at home, he would just fall out, and there wasn't much preparation. You don't need to prepare for that. That just happens. It was the thing that would have been a mountain for me to climb again that I did. I, I put a lot of effort into loving myself before this birth happened. <laughs> wow. I think the biggest, one of the biggest key takeaways for me is like loving yourself fiercely through the whole process, whatever the outcome is. And I think anyone listening, no matter where you're at in your pregnancy or your birth journey, or no matter what birth you had, 
just loving yourself through it all, being kind to yourself through it all. Yes. But I'd love to hear if you had one piece of advice for a pregnant woman right now or someone who maybe wants to get pregnant, what would you say to them? Hmm. I think that would be something along with what we've been talking about, that how your body unfolds in labor is largely beyond your conscious control. That people don't choose their birth experience. It's given by grace. And you have to receive it in grace, I suppose. But how you give birth, there's always going to be, I think I would absolutely tell them this, and I tell, the, I tell everybody this, there's going to be a surprise in every crackerjack box of labor. I mean, you just don't know what it's going to be. You cannot escape a rite of passage and not have a surprise. So be looking for that surprise and be ready to meet it. You don't have to love it, but you have to meet it. Because a rite of passage requires that you do the thing you thought you couldn't do, or you step up, or you it just requires that of you. So that's what I would tell them. And, and to try not, instead of preparing to avoid this thing, prepare to meet this moment, this threshold moment of your life. Mm. Yes, I love that. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing it. Because there is like a cracker box full of goodies. So yeah, just meet them with grace. And yes, it's been given to us from grace. And so we've got to meet it with grace. I love that. Thank you so much. I've got three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay, Melissa, go. What's one thing that we can do today for our health? Like one of the most important things that we can do for our health? Oh, well, I'm on a new kick, which is the microbiome-rich diet. And since it's just changed my life in an absolutely powerful, amazing way, I would say I'd recommend that. Beautiful. What's one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth, so more abundance in all areas of our life? Hmm. Well, I feel so abundantly blessed that it's perhaps doing the thing you love the most with you know gives you the most joy. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And what's one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Oh, to love ourselves more and more and more and more. Yes, <laughs> it's a journey and it's we're going to be doing it for the rest of our lives, you know? Yeah, we are. This so far has been incredible, and I just want to thank you so much. But is there anything else that you want to share or any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't yet asked you? Oh, no, I think you're a wonderful interviewer. I've had a very good time talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I think you and your work is so important. And I'll link to your three incredible books in the show notes. And I just wish every female would dive into them because they're so important. And what you're doing is just such powerful, important work. So I want to thank you so much for doing it and sharing it and writing the books. And I'm a massive believer in service. And the work that you do is just in complete service to women. So how can I and the listeners serve you today? What can we do to serve you? Oh, wow. That's so 
That's a very interesting question. Maybe by following my blog, which was which is about to take off with really talking about the birth story medicine process, because it's my belief that every person who gives birth, and even those who witness birth, should do a birth story process too, because the more fully we can recover the lost pieces of ourselves or the misbeliefs about ourselves, the sooner that birth, the story of birth in our culture can begin to change because the story of birth in our culture is simply made up of building blocks called birth stories. So when the birth stories are more wholesome and more, more, you know, instead of being caught in self-judgment or, or blaming others, you've come to a more complete understanding of what that process was about, then the story of birth in our culture will change. So I would say that that would be that would be what I would ask, is to get more involved in spreading the word about birth story healing as part of the postpartum return. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. You've just been such a delight. It's been so beautiful to chat with you and to connect with you and to hear your wisdom. And like I said before, just your work is incredible and I feel like it's such a gift to all women. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing so openly and honestly with us. Oh, thank you, Melissa. Wasn't that incredible? So much wisdom, so much knowledge, such important information for every single female on this earth and men too. They can benefit a lot from what was shared today. I got so much out of this episode, and if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. And for everything that Pam and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 277. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, maybe they're pregnant right now or they're just about to give birth, please share this with them right now. It is such important information and could really change and shift so much for them. So be an angel and share it with them. You can take a screenshot. You can share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.